We acknowledge that we live and work on the traditional lands of the Gunai Kurnai Nation and that sovereignty was never ceded. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that we benefit from the colonial structures and policies that remain in place today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people and recognise their ongoing struggles in dismantling those structures. During the First World War, strikes caused fuel shortages so severe that the Victorian government reopened the old brown coal mine near Morwell in the Latrobe Valley. And the state government has outlined a long-term plan to ensure the Latrobe Valley remains viable as its economy moves away from coal-fired energy. It's been the lifeblood of the Latrobe Valley for decades, but continual change in the power industry and the introduction of the carbon tax means it's time for a plan B. It's a month tomorrow since fire entered the Hazelwood coal mine in Victoria's east. Fire has been burning for weeks now, blanketing the township in a toxic smoke. The housing estates are literally just 50 metres away, so when the wind blows in the other direction, they take all of that in. The guillotine has finally come down on Australia's dirtiest power station, Hazelwood. It's caused jitters about electricity prices and raised questions about Australia's readiness for a low-carbon future. We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties and wine bars of our inner cities. The Latrobe Valley's coal mines could be filled with water and made into a tourist attraction to rival Italy's Lake Como. This is Coalface. Hello. Hi. How are you, Josie? Oh my god, I'm good. I'm having. I'm sipping on a uh, weird oat milk cold coffee, and I'm feeling like my heart might explode. How are you doing? Uh, I'm delicious. <laughs> You're delicious. That's what? what that drink sounds like, anyway. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, I am good. I am sipping on some fizzy water in a can. I'm looking forward to that. burps. That will be exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Just um, a little bit of coal knowledge and burps. How have you been this week? This week has been interesting. We were on the radio. Oh my god, were we ever? Also, I don't think I've woken up that early, maybe in my whole life. <laughs> it maybe. wasn't that early. It's much easier for me to just stay awake to get up that yeah. early than to like be awake. But it was, it was like, what an experience to go on the radio and get to talk about, of all things, is it meta to talk about this show on its own self? Kind of a little bit, really. <laughs> I'm Joss Whedon. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, was, it was kind of a bit weird. And how could I have I forgot? We launched our first episode oh, with yeah. Thunder. We're like, how are things going? Oh, nothing, nothing major. No, we dropped the first episode. The first of this. episode. So, Hell yeah. I think um, we've had positive reception so far. Yep. No one's left any nasty comments. So, I don't know. Apparently, if you've got one, keep it to yourself or send it to our email at coalfacepodcast at gmail. There we go. I've heard that, like, you don't make it till you get the haters, though. So, True. maybe, like, someone come hate us. Yeah, come, come fight us. This week we have a super special episode right yes well as far as i hear you've been all excitedly like trying not to tell me but i know that you're excited yes i know i'm very excited i got (laughs) to talk to wendy farmer who is an amazing person and told us so much or told me so much about the hazelwood mine fire the inquiries that happened as a result of that so where do we start like it's such a huge topic so i think we'll just start at who is wendy so i'm i'm wendy farmer i'm president of voices of the valley in latrobe valley i'm also a gippsland campaign of her friends of the earth in yes to renewables so for renewable energy a fun thing about me i'm not fun we have a really annoying dog that wants to run out the door every time we open the door. We have two foster children and I have heaps of grandchildren. 
she's involved in so many groups and her LinkedIn profile is Mwah! Is it like chef's kiss? Yeah. The thing that stuck kiss. out for me was the uh, the best people in the world are always like, I'm not fun. That's how you know they're fun. Yeah, right? she's got to be like definitely fun and a foster carer. So she cares, which is amazing. That is super um, cool. I only really know Wendy from the Voices of the Valley thing, which I think I found on Facebook. Sure. And it was definitely from back in the day where it was like actually on fire. Yes, yeah, so the, she, uh, the town, I should say, the town. She did a lot of um, media interviews, which you can find online around the time of the Hazelwood mine fire. Uh, and she's also very involved in the Latrobe Health Assembly and is an assembly member. So is like part of being consulted on health concerns for the valley. Her focus is on the health of the people of the Latrobe Valley. Which my understanding is not great. No, not great. <laughs> but yeah, so the Hazelwood Mine Fire in 2014 is going to be the first thing we learn about from Wendy. The Mine Fire is a very important part of her personal narrative because that was kind of like her activation point. There's nothing like glowing embers to kind of like really like activate you into like, yeah. spur you on. We just like smoke. an actual fire. <laughs> yes, something is happening and it's <laughs> not right. So, so yeah, let's, let's uh, first hear about Wendy's personal connection to the Latrobe Valley. I was born here. I was born, as they would say, in the Yulon Open Cut. So that was the Yulon Hospital, the town that was dug up for coal. So I've lived here all my life. I did move away after we got married for six months, but the roots were too strong here and I came back. It's an interesting thing that I learned way back when people say, well, if you don't like what you've got, why don't you just leave? I often relate it to a tree, that if you dig up a tree, sometimes it will survive if you move it but you will always leave roots behind. Yeah, so something that really uh, touched me on what Wendy was saying then is that we do hear this thing often, if you don't like it, why don't you just leave? I think that lots of people are very connected to this area and it's not as simple as just saying, if you don't like being near the power station, then move. If it's unhealthy, then just move away. Yeah. Uh, because there is all these not only community connections, but financial reasons that you can't just oh, get away. So I like that she touched on that because I've heard that before. Oh my like, God, yeah, if you don't like it, just leave. There, there was an excellent tweet floating around, I think the other day that was just like, where do you want me to go, Jan? You want to like <laughs> move like with my no money into like the city and then like, but it's also like, this is where my community is, this is where my family is. Like, where are we supposed to go? Exactly. It's such a like, I don't know. Someone has to also make the electricity. Someone has to be here to service the people who make the electricity. It's interesting she was talking about, I don't think she said born in a hole, but she's like born in your lawn or something. I am obsessed with the fact that that town was dug up. Like I love hearing like haunted stories about like the, the it was art deco too. Which it was I, like, so beautiful. Obsessed. And obsessed. we did talk about your lawn. <laughs> so how about we drop on over to that clip? You know, one thing about your lawn that a lot of people don't know and you, you'd probably be aware of is it was it was a town built for the power station. It was state government owned and basically operated in the sense of the residents didn't put gardens in unless they asked for permission. It was an ideal town. It was, a, in a way, a perfect town. Business and or industry worked with the residents, which is what we're seeing a lot more now, actually, when it comes to renewable energy. So the perfect town. The perfect town. And oh, like nom, you've nom. seen the photos, right? Oh my god. Yeah. I obsessively scroll on the internet and look at those photos. They yeah. give me why do they make me feel haunted though? Because it's not there anymore, because it's gone. It yeah. was a whole community, it was a whole town, and it was really gorgeous. You can see the maps and the houses. I live in an old Yalorn house. Your oh, mum lives in an old she Yalorn does. house. Yeah. And, and my favourite thing is that they like cut them in half and then put them back together and you get to like archaeology through the house and be like, that's where they cut them. Yeah. 
yeah. and stuff because it was destroyed. Totally. And I don't so know if spooky. I should say this now or not because I would love to do a whole episode of Not Season on your lawn and the SEC. And for everyone who doesn't know, yes. the SEC is the State Electricity Commission. My house, like I said, was a lawn house and there's a hills hoist a clothesline which mm-hmm. came from your lawn as well so when they sold the houses off before they dug it up they sold a little a gar- like a garden shed the house and the hills hoist as a package oh my god and so my that's what you need for the australian dream yeah <laughs> a fucking hills hoist a house and a garden shed exactly right oh so they god. were selling the australian dream Ew. from your lawn <laughs> um but my dad t- has told me this story that when they built the house and they were moving it, he saw this little old lady because there was people that didn't want to leave your lawn. They were staying there till like the very last minute. Mm-hmm. And my dad went to get his hills hoist and his little garden His shed, little package. His little package. And the hills hoist was gone. <gasps> so what? he sees this little um, old lady and she says that she noticed some SEC workers were working in the rain on the weekend. And apparently, if you know anything about SEC workers or construction workers, (laughs) they will not work in the rain and they do not work in the weekends because they're really unionized. So the second that rain happened, they've they've got those healthy boundaries. Yeah, they had very healthy boundaries (laughs) and like very strong unions. So the lady thought it was weird that there was these people in Mm. SEC outfits um, and she watched them go to all of the houses and take the clotheslines. And my dad's like, what? And this is this whole plot that these people came and stole the hills hoist from parts of your lawn under the guise of being SEC workers. But oh this old lady God. had spotted them because she was like, what are they doing working in the rain and on the weekend? What did they want with them though? So, so they sold them for scrap or it's oh. a hills hoist. It's like a like, good... Are they going to do some kind of like thing where they're like in the back of the truck, you want to buy a hills hoist? They open no, the jacket, no, there's like much. 50 like, hills hoist Yeah, there. for scrap metal or for that kind of thing. Oh my so God. my dad reported this, but nothing came of it. But apparently... To this day, he really wishes he has a hill toy. Well, no, we got one. We got one from a different house. I feel like you could do more schemes back then. Well, yeah, definitely do you could do schemes. more schemes. But yeah. I wouldn't, like, notice. You put someone in high vis and I'm like, cool, as you yeah, are. Yeah, supposed to be. Exactly. Yeah. I know. Yeah, It's for deceptive. Sure. But, yeah, this lady was like, no, this is weird. I don't know if anyone else has any stories about the wild old year lawn, but we'd love to hear them. So send them into our email. Yeah. Great. So now that we've covered a bit about your lawn, a bit about Wendy's personal connection to the area, let's talk about her connection to the mining industry. Um, so my dad helped build the power station, his and my grandfather, my brother, you know, as he grew up, did odd jobs and different things around the power stations as contractor. My husband worked at your lawn when we first got married. So that was 82 and then went on to Morwall, Briquette and then Hazelwood. So, you know, the power industry for us has been really strong. For him, it's been a good job. It's set us up, but things will change. So Wendy, like lots of people in the area, have um, a really strong connection to the mining industry. And just to put the spotlight back over to you, <laughs> Josie, I um, saw in a message from your mum after we did the radio oh interview God. that your opa worked at the uh, power station as well, right? Yes. So there's nothing like a podcast for your family to come at you with all the facts that you just, I don't know, didn't pay attention to at the time. But yeah, apparently he's also one of those you know plucky immigrants who'd done some... Uh, 
like mining stuff. My mom came at me with the same thing. My opa, who Thanks, was moms. a carpenter, also helped build the power station. I was unaware, like in my mind, they've got yeah. like, he took us as a dredger operator because right. he was deaf. And that was like, I don't know what- Like Link, right? Yeah, I could remember that. But I thought that was fun that both of our other yeah, grandparents- Yeah, I think of my opa as like the guy who had Hugo 2 on PC, not, <laughs> you know, power station guy. So I don't know how that slipped my- yeah. Mine, but yeah, thanks, mum. Yeah, thank you, mum. Uh, also. <laughs> but so. yeah, I was going to say, like, Wendy has that classic sort of, like, multi-generation, you know, take... And it is, like, it, like if you had a dad working in the power station, that's the good job. You're going to have, Absolutely. like, you know, a car and, like, you probably own your house. Yeah. Right? Like, that's I, the fancy job. <laughs> so, uh, amongst all the other things that Wendy does, I asked her about the Latrobe Health Assembly because I didn't know a lot about what that was. So um, the Latrobe Health Assembly was formed after the Hazelwood Mine Fire oh. and they kind of connect all of the smaller health groups um, in the valley uh, to, so they speak to each other and they can think about the health outcomes that they want to bring So that's forth. the assembly part. Is it a government thing? Yes. It so is. It, they came as a direct result of the Hazelwood Mine Fire inquiries, of which there were four, just oh going to point that God. out now, because <laughs> there were four of them all dealing with different things. And um, yeah, the Latrobe Health Assembly is one of them. So I asked Wendy about her work with the Latrobe Health Assembly. I would have to go back to when we were calling for, you know, a health innovation zone for Latrobe Valley. And, you know, the fact that we were told that, well, you couldn't do that. And we got it, you know, and it just showed that people power actually could change the way that we look at things, even though it still hasn't really been put into legislation. The health assembly was born out of the health innovation zone. It really addresses some of the issues that have been longstanding in Latrobe Valley, and that is the health issues. So we know, for instance, that the guys live, I think it's four and a half years less than the average Victorian or Australian. And then, you know, females might be three years less. And I'd have to exactly check those things. But but the lifespan for people that live around Latrobe Valley is definitely less. Now, this is report, has been reported for many years in the VCOS reports and health reports about the Latrobe Valley. So when the Hazelwood mine fire happened and we saw the massive health impacts there and further to that, the inquiries that followed that actually started to talk about the long-term health impact of living near power stations. And so that's how the health assembly really came around. The, the need to go, well, we know there's actually something different, but what have we ever done about it? The other thing we found with the inquiries were the fact that we had so many different agencies, but the agencies sitting around the table really didn't know what each other did. So the Health Assembly is an opportunity to connect all the different agencies together to actually support people. All right, I'm so sorry, but that is the first time I heard that we're gonna die. <laughs> So up until this point, I thought I would live forever. I started reading some of the VCOS reports and things like that um, after hearing this because I was like, surely, like, it, that should be common knowledge. How are they not but billboards? Yeah, there Let isn't me know. because they don't want, like, yep, yep, they don't want yeah. us to know because mm -hmm. if you know, then would you want to live here? Would you want to, like... Well, I am a little bit spooked now. I, know, I mean, I, I saw I, your face. I, I, yeah, the colour drained from my face. I mean, I did know that there was, like, more respiratory issues and a bit more asthma and stuff but i really didn't know that they'd like quantified it down to like 
the years of my life. Yeah. So they no. have, and um, as uh, what I said to Wendy as well, is that I was acutely aware of the asthma issue because my brother had asthma. And I still haven't fact-checked this, but <laughs> there's like the rumours that you hear in high school, such as the, uh, the whites of people's eyes in the Latrobe Valley are yellower and that optometrists can tell that you live close to a power no station and like all these things. So I don't know that that's true, but I'm sure it's rooted in some truth. I think the thing is, right, there is a collective sort of knowledge down here and it's almost like you take it like a sick joke where it's like, ha ha ha, it's so dusty. Like this can't be good. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I think we talked about last time, like just the cold dust on your windowsills and stuff. Like it's yeah. real. And then I guess you're just like, whatever, like how bad can a little bit of, but it's so much dust. It's oh so much dust. And that, that leads me to a fun little anecdote about my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go. Let's go. Let's go. All right. I've been fighting this disease in my kefir lime plant. It's had these black spots on it. And I thought it was like this horrible black spot disease. And I've been treating it with neem oil and rubbing it off. But I had a friend over and I <gasps> showed my friend the dots and he's like that's just like on the plant oh, it's like from your house my god look at the underside of your house and there's like all of these black dust speckles that have gone all over my plant to make it look like so it's just dust it's dust so that and you know i live away from the power station i'm in Maui, so that's at least you know 11 kilometers yeah, you'd think the dust. Yeah. Less of a thing. And maybe it's just Oh, like that's good. You're going to die with me as well. I was hoping we could die around <laughs> the same time. Well, I don't want to live without you. <laughs> Look, Josie, we'll, we'll go down on the we'll go down. like those old people. <laughs> oh, just holding hands. Yes. Oh my God, that yeah. kills me. <laughs> like literally kills me. Yeah. But it, oh, dude, so it was, it's dust? It's like dust. So uh, like it looks like coal dust to me, but my dad reckons it can't be coal dust. Okay. Um, so if you're a botanist or whatever it is that people who take care of plants, let us know. What yeah. Going on but with it's, it's like took some off and it's like charcoal dust that's what it looks like there is stuff in the air all around us and some of it is the pm 2.5 particles which come again gesundheit what excuse me <laughs> yeah i am not smart on science so what is this the p pm 2.5 sounds like a beautiful new like tampon or something <laughs> PM. Try me now. P well, that would be the <laughs> smallest tampon in the history of the world because the <laughs> I'm looking at my notes real hard for this because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a PM 2.5 particle is less than 2.5 microns wide. Josie, do you know what a micron is? That is mean. No, I don't. <laughs> I, it sounds very small. I did not know either. But uh, there is 10,000 microns in a centimeter. <gasps> so that's, that's a lot. How tall, the, like small, not tall, small, Quite the small. particles are. That's crazy. And Wait, so that's what we're breathing in? That is potentially what is in the air. It was oh, definitely in the air during the Hazelwood Mine Fire. Well... I'm probably not going to move because moving is real hard and I already live here. It and is. I like it. It is hard. But to track us back to where we should be <laughs> Away at, from poo, tiny uh, poo particles. Away from um, microns. <laughs> so the Health Assembly, they do a bunch of innovations with early childhood development and with community connectedness and vulnerability and things like touch. that. So, the, But they're also involved in doing studies. So they are doing long-running health studies to check the mental health, the physical health of people in the Latrobe Valley. And none of that was happening prior to the mine fire. So we've got to really have to take things back a bit yeah. to the Hazelwood mine fire. Yes. Okay. Because that's the thing, right? Like, I want to hear 
all about it because she was wasn't Wendy there? Wendy she was in the town, was right? In the town at the time. <gasps> and this is her, like I said, moment of activation. This right. is her awakening. I love that. Okay, let's yeah. go, let's go, let's go. I love it. Let's hear what she has to say. 2014, I remember the day clearly. My husband had come home from work. He was in bed sleeping when the fire took hold. I was standing in my kitchen, that's how clearly I remember it, with the call to say the fire has got into the mine. Now this fire, there had been a fire burning two days previously. So on the Friday, it was a really bad day. The weather was bad. There were fires all around. In fact, Newbra was under threat. I never thought Newbra would be under threat from a fire. You know, my friend was saying there, get in the car ready to pack up. I was at work. My daughter was at work in Trollgan. My granddaughter was on, so you would know, opposite um, the BP service station where the fire was running down at the daycare centre. And we were getting calls from the daycare centre to say, you need to come and pick her up. We have to evacuate. We couldn't get through. We were stuck on the Trollgan side of Moorwall and she was on their side. I, in the end, rang my neighbour and said, can you go and get her? When he went and got her and... He rang me, he said, I've got Sienna, and I just cried, just knowing that she was safe because I knew he would never, ever let anything happen to her. So it was clear the fire had started on the Friday. It hit the mine on the Sunday. We got a, I got a call to say all workers needed to be back in at work. Brett was asleep. I went up and said to him, hey, Brett, you've got to wake up. There's a fire in the mine. Everybody's got to get to work. It took him about three hours to get to work that particular day. It was just, you know, and I didn't think much of it. Mine's had fires before. I would never have thought then that it was going to burn for 45 plus days. He he went into work that particular night. There was an explosion. We lost power. And, of course, the social media then was going, oh, there's been explosion. People have died. But that wasn't the point where I actually went, what is happening? It came a little bit later and it came several days later when my husband got sick and was sent home from work and they drove him home and said he wouldn't be allowed back on site for several days he'd inhaled too much carbon monoxide or whatever and he wouldn't be back allowed back in work he went back to work he was working and my daughter rang from melbourne who was an activist and said just to talk to dad how's things going she knew there was a fire but it was classed as a bushfire. People in Melbourne weren't aware because they're used to hearing there's a bushfire in, you know, Gippsland and nothing ever comes of it. She sort of went, what? We're not hearing about it. So she actually came down to the valley and she wrote the first article called The Cult Disaster in the Valley for Red Flag magazine. It was a couple of days later she said to me, Mum, you have to organise a protest. And I've gone, what do you mean, me? What am I going to do? You know, you have to do something, Mum, you have to do something. And that was really where it all started. At that time, the community were just amazing. I mean, the community was suffering. The community was scared. They were looking at their friends. They were looking at their kids. They knew there was a health impact. By this, we've had no government attention and no media, okay? It was a bushfire at Hazelwood. That was it. We had nothing. Um, we started organising the protest and people were just going... I can give you some money to print, I can print, I can deliver leaflets, I can put leaflets up, I can do this, I can do that. I was never going to speak at that rally. There was a young, um, there were about 1,200 people attend that particular rally and that was a weekend when a lot of people were trying, if you could leave the valley, you left the valley. This particular um, day, a mum, I think she had three kids stood up, they had evacuated to Churchill and living in a motel and she said, I'm really scared for my kids. 
in the morning I had actually read an article in the Herald Sun. The article spoke about Rosemary Lester saying, we don't know what is in the smoke, but if it's bad, don't breathe it. I so wish I still had that article. And I was a bit like, well, don't we have a right to breathe air? <laughs> you know, go inside, close your windows, close your doors. Go out. If it's okay, go outside, open your windows, open your doors if your houses get too smoky. All the houses were smoky, like right across the valley, you could smell it. If you could smell it, you were being impacted. I had actually read the Health Act of 2008 that morning, which said that they had to take the precautionary me measure. If they didn't know what was in the smoke, the smell, they had to take the precautionary measure as a health department and call a state of disaster. So that's, that was on the back of my mind. When this mum had stood up and spoke about her kids and her fears, and I think she was a teacher also, I sort of had my piece of paper and I got up and walked on the stage and they were like, no, 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 because I wasn't sort of that stage, organising the stage. And I said, I have to say this right now. I got up there and I mentioned Rosemary Lester's name and the audience just went, you know, basically, rah, all I can remember is this, I want to kill you right now type thing. And I put my hand up and I said, but wait, we have to make them, you know, this is what she said, we have to make it a state um, state of emergency you know that we can get help into Latrobe Valley we didn't ever get it but that was the moment that I realized that I had a voice as much as I was really shy and I still don't know how I did it that day like I look back on it and I go how did I actually stand up there in front of those people I just one I was angry and I think anger sometimes really enforces things to do um, Rosemary Lester had come down several days before and on the Friday afternoon, actually late Friday afternoon, and said we're going to give assistance to those the south side of Morwell, go to the DHS office. The DHS office didn't open any later. They were gone. They wanted to get out of the smoke. Like there was no assistance. Yeah. After we had the meeting, we wanted to march from Kernet Hall to the plaza. As we were getting ready to go, this old lady approached me and she said, my husband's on oxygen. We need help. We don't know where to go. I was just so, how can we leave vulnerable people in such a state without supporting them when we're in Australia? And I was saying then, you know, if this was um, happened overseas, we would have called the Army and the Air Force and anybody in to help and we would have sent aid, but they didn't because it was Latrobe Valley. So, oh, <laughs> oh my God, that's... um. A few things really resonate with me. Mm -hmm. The idea, like we were both in the city and I do really resonate with her daughter's thing where it was like we were in the city and it wasn't reported straight away in the same way. I think you're just like, whatever, you know, bushfires happen. And I think there was that slow dawning sort of thing where you're like, hang on, this is this quite is different. Um, I think the call to action for her coming from I mean what's like, her I have yeah, shivers yeah, just saying that even and that whole time I was just like wow I mean the idea that like you know for lack of it like the regular citizen stepping up and just like doing what needed to be done I think though her final point about like it's because it's the literate value yeah and this is part of that ongoing thing where it's like we are this like whether this is reality or not but there definitely feels like there is a perception that we are not worth helping yeah I, I think there's been a complete othering and like I've been responsible for othering myself like <laughs> moving to the city I would do anything that I could to avoid saying that I was from here yeah because we've got a reputation problem yeah but that's not our fault like no, that's yeah. the 
yeah, that's a narrative that's been created, I think, because they don't want people to care about, like, the areas around where the power comes from. I just wanted to point out for everyone as well that Rosemary Lester was the chief health officer at the time. Yeah. And so I read, I couldn't find the article that Wendy references, but I did read um, some other things about her. Yeah, the, the state of emergency wasn't called and everyone was told to, it's fine to stay. Just close your door. I think that's, I mean, so I feel like we can reflect on this a little bit since we've obviously gone through the pandemic, not yeah. to bring up the coronavirus, but obviously a state of emergency has been ongoing declared. I mean, like, yeah. you know, we can park the whole discussion around the merits and whatever of that. But it, interestingly, like this issue where the air was unbreathable uh, and they didn't declare it that, yeah. Like, that seems wild. Also, she mentioned the right to breathe air. Yeah. I, all of this that so much fucked. strong language. <laughs> oh, and God. yeah, of course you should have the right to breathe air oh. that isn't fucked. I'm going to do a shout out to an article I read about Morwell that was written by Tom Doig, who's an author who's written, I hope I'm saying the last name right, who's written a few different things about the coalface and about Hazelwood. So two books and a bunch of articles, but... Um, he wrote an article called It Was Like Mordor, I believe. More- that is 100%. Have you seen those photos of the yeah. glowing holes? It's literally like yeah. horrible. It's horrible. Sauron eye spookiness. That's it. So it was a fantastic article and I suggest like everyone gives it a read. But he came to Morwell for a day, <laughs> an overnight stay, and speaks about how the CFA were handing out uh, breathing apparatus, like the... Like the Probably the K and the P- yeah, we're so used to them now. Block out the PM two point five particles. Those micro boys talking about earlier. The CFA weren't wearing them, so he grabbed one but didn't wear one. And there was this attitude amongst the town people that he's reporting on that oh they didn't want to put their mask on because they're worried it would be off putting to people who wanted oh. to shop there. And but he stayed overnight in Morwell and was coughing up green phlegm and then a few days later was coughing up blood. Oh my so, god. Like, and these people just living in it for four days. That's right. Days. So I wanted to point out his yeah. experience with that because like that's an overnight visit to come and do some reporting and he's coughing up blood a few days later. Oh. And I'm um, like living in it for forty five days. So uh, we're going to be talking about the Hazelwood Mine Fire pretty much this whole episode. And so we'll uh, dip in and out. But I just wanted to jump in and quickly fill out a little bit about Voices of the Valley. Yeah, where did that come from? So Voices of the Valley was formed as a direct result of the Hazelwood Mine Fire and this protest. But um, it started as a group and as a series of protests called Disaster in the Valley. Oh, it's got a ring. ring it does. It. <laughs> it has quite the ring to it. But um, they, for various reasons, which Wendy might mention, um, uh, they changed the name to Voices of the Valley. They also started doing research on the ground about um, the health impacts and the deaths and things that were happening. And they started asking people how they were feeling. So they were like a community citizen scientist-ish kind Ooh. of thing. Uh, and cool. so a lot of the, the research that has been used in the Hazelwood Mine Fire inquiries, they they were able to provide a lot of that data. That's Otherwise, incredible. they wouldn't have had it. Yeah, so like I said, um, Voices of the Valley were on the ground after the fires. They were really pushing for an inquiry into the fires themselves and to who was responsible 
these deaths that they'd found because they'd been looking um, in the community and they could see that there was an increase in deaths. They'd heard about people's children that were getting sick by living in the smoke. There were small animals dying. There was all this oh, fuck shit, right? That, fucked shit. Fuck shit that shouldn't be happening. So um, they were very instrumental in pushing the community, raising the community voice to demand the mine fire inquiries of which there were four. And I asked Wendy to give us a bit of a summary of those. Let's just hear Tell it. Tell me about these four in inquiries. Inquiries. Yes. Inquiries. Go for it. Voice of the Valley had discovered through their health surveys and talking to people and looking through newspapers during the time of the fire that we had had an increase of deaths. We actually took that to the health department to say, can you look into it? We thought it was their job. And they basically said, no, we have had no deaths. In fact, we had politicians standing at fire station saying we guarantee you that voices of the valley are wrong and we've had no increase in deaths so what really highlighted to us was when there's deaths in the local newspaper it will say result of accident tragically after a long illness but a lot of these were suddenly but it was on top of people saying my guinea pigs died last night my chooks died my rabbits died the smaller animals died so then we started thinking well if smaller animals died and all of a sudden we're seeing these suddenly deaths so that was a question we asked did deaths occur during the fire and the answer was no so the first inquiry was eventually called but the first inquiry basically looked at possibly what went wrong, who was responsible. But in the end, nobody was responsible. The power stations did everything they could do. The health departments did everything they could do. Everybody did everything they could do. So it felt like, well, here's a poison ball. Let's throw it around. Nobody's to blame. And it felt like the community was to blame because they didn't leave. Yet all the advice was... It's okay if it's really bad, go inside. If it's, you know, not too bad outside, open your windows. And the chief health officer, just don't breathe the air. I believe medical experts on TV. I believe the Herald Sun if it told me that I needed to do something. Like, I didn't question authority because I grew up not questioning authority. Okay, so these people stayed because they were told it was okay. There, there was a story of one young boy who was about eight or nine that was being bussed out of Morwall, and I know the family well, to, to Newborough to school. And there was one night he'd come home and he said, I don't want to come home to my house. My house hurts me. Like, that is terrible. Your yeah, home should terrible. be your haven, your safe place. Kids should want to be there. That that was another teary moment for me when, you know, <laughs> I heard that story. So just don't breathe the air, mate. Just stop. Just stop, stop breathing. breathing. Just hold your nose. Close oh, your mouth. That is, I mean, we, is that not the most obvious, like, of, like, why people don't trust yeah. the government? Where they're like, no, nah, mate, just breathe the poison. That's just, exactly just breathe it. right. Like, oh, I don't yeah. think I will, sir. Um, yeah, it's a prime example. Uh, and I'm sure that there was some distraction tactic oh. going on. And uh, from some of the articles I read, the suggestion of the distraction tactic was just focusing on how the fire got started, like whether it was from lightning or whether it was an arsonist. When what we right. should be looking at, how the mining companies were not prepared for a fire to get into the mine. Because as you know, from like our last episode talking with Rhonda, that is a real risk, like all the time. And they had not done enough to rehab the walls of the mine to prevent the fire from happening. So the distraction tactic was bushfire. It was arsonist. It was all of these things when all of the people in the Latrobe Valley are being told to like 
don't breathe the just air. Don't breathe, man. Like, oh. and all of this, all oh. of this stuff. So, hearing the account of what was happening on the ground at the time and the small animals dying, the RSL deaths increase. Like, it's mind-boggling, and it feels like so mind-boggling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a bit of a whoopsie do. <laughs> You've got minds on the brain. I just, yeah. I laugh because it's so devastating. I, I really don't know. Like, I, like, it's it's hard to believe this really happened. Let's just be real here. Like, we were discussing, this is like a comedy podcast, like comedy info infotainment yeah. podcast. And we were very seriously discussing how, in fact, we were going to make this funny because it's not funny. It's, it's not, not fun. It's fucking horrendous. It is. Um. So, yeah, this is our Maya attempt Culpa. at comedy. <laughs> yeah. Please don't. But I think, again, like, I feel like sometimes the only way to process how absurd and grotesque and, you know, confusing and wrong things that happen in the world are is to kind of laugh, I guess. Yeah. I I just, it's just, it's absurd. What happens next is voices of the valley and other people are not satisfied with the outcome of the first inquiry. So they fought for another one. The first inquiry was quite narrow from my understanding. Like it was just the who was to blame. Was it the mine fire? Was it the arsonist or the lightning? So yeah, who was to blame there, but it didn't look at the deaths and it didn't look at the health impacts of the people, the long-term health impacts. So they fought for another one and another one and another one. And then the EPA sued the government. (laughs) Oh my God, is that where we're heading? That's where we're heading. Hell yeah. yeah. (laughs) So the second inquiry gave us the opportunity to really look at those broader issues. So it looked at mining and mining rehabilitation. That had never been done. There had been, you know, minimal bonds on the power stations around here of, you know, $15 million or even less for your lawn which, you know, we're looking at over 300 million probably just for Hazelwood at the moment and we're still going. You know, yeah. it, it would have been worth a company just going, we're out of here and walking away and losing their $15 million. Then there was the inquiry into the health of the community. We had teams around tables that had never really spoken to each other. The health assembly came out as a recommendation from that inquiry. There was inquiry into deaths and we were vindicated in that inquiry and congratulated at the very end of that for the work we had done. In all these inquiries, we participated in and gave a lot of information that we had collected and then there was the other one was really about what went wrong after those inquiries and there were so many recommendations and you know directly it was said we will take all the recommendations accept all the recommendations and work on them the court case that followed that and once again we called for the court case wasn't about the how the fire got into the mine it was the risks that the company knew prior to that fire that they didn't deal with you know, yeah. So a lot of community think that they didn't cause the fire. They may not have caused the fire, but they knew the risks that were posed inside the mine to not only the workers, but the community outside the mine. So, all right, I'm not the best <laughs> at listening, <laughs> but let me try to get clear on what she's sort of saying. So the primary thing amongst all the other stuff that came out of the inquiries, which of course activated a whole bunch of community, what are they called? Like bodies that yes. did stuff. And money. And money, yeah. It doesn't really matter whether it's an arsonist or a bushfire or whatever. Like, sure, let's figure that out. But the primary thing that I'm taking away is that the mine owners themselves, they the responsibility lies with them because they didn't prepare for the eventuality. That's right. Because that there could be a fire. it was a known risk. Like it's a known risk that there could be a fire in the mine. So So they knew that that was a possibility and they didn't do the things that you're supposed to do to rehab. Are we just saying that we were just lucky for like the previous hundred years? Well, not, no, not necessarily because the SEC had all of this, I believe it was 
if I'm remembering correctly from the movie I watched, the documentary, not just the fun movie, it was like all this copper piping and stuff that sprays water out onto the coal, the sprinkler system. And you can see that now. Now they have sprinkler systems. I believe they didn't have that at the time of the fire because it was all sold off for scrap metal, (gasps) scrap scrap copper. Oh my God. So that wasn't the fault of the mine operator that was currently in charge, but they knew that those things weren't there and they didn't fix it. And so like to rehab a mine wall, one of the things that you can do if you're not going to put a pit lake in it is to put clay over the top of the coal so it's not directly And that's what they're doing now. Yeah, that's all the stuff they're doing now, but they knew that it it was a risk then and they didn't do anything to protect it. And like if you think about the bushfires that we had before the mine fire in like 2009? Yes, the Black Black Friday. Black Friday, Black Saturday, (laughs) Black Sunday. One of those bad bushfires. Real bad. So in 2009 or 8 or whatever, like I had a white top on to go to the supermarket. I walked two blocks and it was fucking black. So like I'm imagining that was the same situation for the mine fires there. And so they knew that we just had bad bushfires. So it should be fresh in the mine operator's mind. I wonder if it's like a she'll be right type of like. (laughs) That classic attitude. It's such a huge hole. How could you just be like, you know what? I'm just going to hope for the best. Where does she go from here? Like, we've had these inquiries. Like, what happens next? So after the inquiries into the Hazelwood mine fire, there was 22 charges laid. And Wendy's going to tell us about that. So, but that was interesting. So those charges were um, brought up from the EPA for the pollution events and the health impacts on not only workers, but the community and then work safe. And same, basically same sort of thing, the health impacts that were to the workers, but also, you know, the community around. So that was 22 charges. And, you know, as much as the fines weren't as big as we would have liked to see them, it's still 22 charges. And this has given us an opportunity to actually look at the health impacts from um, coal, but also make um, companies aware that if they have a known risk, they must act on the known risk. As a result, uh, legislation got changed that meant that if a company knew about a risk that could occur, that they had to act on them, and it was then illegal for them not to act on that Ooh, risk. that's smart. So that's a pretty big, yeah. uh, big legislative change, but also mind-boggling that we didn't have that yet. So one of the things that I love the most about Wendy and that I love talking to her about is that she's really cognizant of the fact that things change and that things need to change. And that is part of like transitioning away from this coal economy, hopefully towards new things in the valley. But it applies like in all all cases in life. Everything is constantly changing. So Wendy um, is going to tell us about the relationship between the power station and the community and also the SEC and the community and where there might be a little bit lost in translation for some of the community members who are holding on to the SEC glory days of of that being a real part of building our community versus the power station operators now that are very separate from the community. The SEC for a lot of people in Latrobe Valley has been like the family. You know, you don't talk bad about the family. You don't talk about bad about the SEC. You accept what we're, what we've got and it's not as bad as it used to be, you know. What are you complaining about? You live in the valley and you should be used to the coal dust. You should accept that. And it's don't talk bad about the family. And I think it's really interesting in the alliance between community and the power station like there's some sort of hold that while we appreciate what it has done for us, that all changed. 
that change in privatisation. Like we were one of probably the richest places in Victoria, as in wages and in wealth in the community and connection in the community. The workers of the power stations built the hospitals, they built the swimming pools, they funded the schools, they, you know, they did lots of things. And I'm not saying this SEC did it, the workers did it. They paid $5 a week out of their pay to build the Maui Hospital and keep the Maui Hospital running. It was community. That changed when we privatised. It changed because it became a business that made a profit to shareholders to an international company, I'll add there, that the relationships between the community and the power station change, yet a lot of people don't see that change. Um, I was born in Maui Hospital. <laughs> and as someone who is like a millennial, it is my responsibility to make everything about myself. And I think that's beautiful. That I didn't know that they put their own... That's so... um. Not to be communist about it, but like, isn't that like the dream? It is. It <laughs> or like is a like, socialist dream. It is. It's almost like we could scrap privatization and go back to some kind of state-owned system. Collective. Collective. Power. Community-owned things. Oh. Um, which is great. I seriously like... Mental brain. Like, as funny as Josie and I both are, we... Please do actually know what we're talking about a little bit more than we... Speak for yourself. Whatever. I mean, you know. But you yeah. know. But, but yeah, yeah. We've, we've researched is what I'm trying to say. Like, we researched I things. read a couple of Wikipedias and I feel like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, I, do you remember the incredible power of finding an SEC jumper in an op shop? And oh, everyone yeah. would be like, that is, I'm getting that. Like, these were incredible. They, like, puffy jackets with the SEC logo. Yeah. And they were, like, prized possessions yeah. in high school. I absolutely had, I feel like I should have gone to your fucking high school <laughs> because I had an SEC jumper and that I like, wore what all is the time. This? And um, this guy um, started teasing me because <laughs> I dressed like a grandpa. <laughs> But isn't that, that's like, because people's grandparents were wearing the fucking SEC jumpers. Yeah. They were like the V, blue. Yeah, I and had, they had a, yeah. For some reason, they, I, f- I feel like I'm seeing orange as well. Like, with the orange and blue. Am I right? I don't know. I'm, if you I'm, have some old SEC stuff, bring it to my house. Yeah. Because I want to, like, we'll wear, like, an SEC sort of, like, bring fashion back. show. Yeah. Yeah. I think the idea that we've, I mean, again, obviously privatization mm-hmm. rolled out across almost the whole fucking Western world. Like, yes. this genius idea, in retrospect... Probs not. I mean, maybe we can speak to an economist someday who can like really summarize why it was like a short-term cash injection and like actually fucking awful. You know, feel free to fight me on Twitter about it, but I feel like hasn't turned out great for anyone. No, I don't think it has either. And this is like my concern with us moving to renewables as well, is that all of the new renewable um, companies that I'm aware of at the moment, like fight me, not on Twitter because I don't go there. But fight me somewhere if I'm wrong. But they're all offshore. They're right. all... Well, it's still under the same old system, isn't yeah. it? It's still just like so private companies coming in. I feel like it's a step in the right direction sure. to have renewables. But I am still hyper concerned um, by the fact that that we really have no nothing but someone's word to go on on how they're going to support the community. And like... You know, I know we've got these, what the land loans and things like that yep. that you have to pay. And that legislation that they put yeah, into and there that, are some but provisions. There are provisions, but what do they really mean? Oh, um, so no, as Wendy yeah. mentioned earlier, there were, it wasn't much money, the loan on the land. Like, oh, it's nothing, for, $15 million. Exactly, like, what for a company that, that billion? makes billions. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like, Whatever. Um, you know, Elon Musk decides to open muck. Elon Musk um, decides to open up 
a solar plant in Wallel, for example, what does he care if he has to pay $15 million? It's poo change like, for them. Like, who exactly. cares? So I think that is still a serious concern, but maybe in 50 years we'll have better legislation around this or we'll go back to a state-run system. Let's see what Wendy, what, what Wendy can do for us next. Yes! <laughs> How's she going to solve it? What happens? Well, I think she might tell us about the biggest employer in the area. Oh, now, let's find out. The health industry in Latrobe Valley is the biggest employer because we have so many health issues here. Yet you will talk to people every day that can't see a doctor. It was interesting. I had a conversation the other day and I'm, it was with someone from one of the power stations and I'm not going to name which power station where we said we don't understand why there's so many in the communities that believe that we will continue with the power stations burning brown coal for energy like we have seen for the last 100 years. You know, there's so many that still believe that will happen and it's the only way that it can happen and it's baseload power and it's the only way forward. While the people in the industry know that we can create the renewable energy systems and why I said systems is because it's not just solar, it's not just wind, it's a lot of different things that complement each other to actually will give us that reliable energy at a cheaper price. Power stations know that. They're not making big profits now because renewable energy systems are coming in and they know there's an end to it, yet the community finds it really hard to accept. So I think this is something that I've thought about a lot in making this. I mean, I'm sure we, I mean, we've all had family members who work in the mines. I think we all probably know people who, I don't know if it's as simple as the polarization of like conservative and not conservative, but I think we probably know people who are like, you know, they don't, I don't know if believe is the word, but they're just not necessarily on board that renewables are the way to go for whatever yeah. reason. And I guess it's interesting hearing Wendy talk about that because I think we haven't really addressed that on this podcast yet. And I know it's only episode two, but I mean, like, I feel like there is, um, I don't know, like there is this group of people who are going to fundamentally disagree, I think, with kind of where we're coming from. But I am super open to hearing about why they feel that way. Like Same. I'd love to speak to someone about, about it and I can't you know I've definitely had pub conversations that maybe don't go so well but yeah I think I'm curious to find out like what the psychology is and like interested to know what what that thinking is like what what from pub conversation um which is science okay it's like a thousand percent like a beaker like something that I've heard often is that people are worried about the base load being stored in batteries and things like that so that we can't harness the same amount of energy um, using renewables that we can through coal because it's continually burning, but we have to store it in big batteries and the batteries are expensive and they can't last forever and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think personally that that's a bit of an out, outdated thinking. Yeah, because that, that, that technology has come down in price exactly, like, right? so much, right? Yeah, it, it's come down in price a lot. That's what Rhonda was sort of talking about and not in the terms of just making it purely an economic decision, but it yeah. does sound like that industry, as far as I can understand, is like they know where they need to go. It's yeah. simply not even economically viable Exactly. To hold that up. So that's why, yeah, I'd love, I mean, again, I'd really like to understand that thinking and is it just a matter of like, this is what we've always done. This is what we always know. Yeah. And again, is it the lack of a plan for people to get out of that industry? That they're it. not transferable skills. Not being able to imagine. They're not thought about. There's a fear in this community that if the power stations close, we all die, basically. We don't have energy. We all die. We've got nothing. What's the Latrobe Valley? Rather than a, okay, things are changing 
How do we actually influence that change to make sure that the Latrobe Valley flourishes? How do we tell the story that we don't push people away from the jobs that they know, but we create the jobs that people move to? We don't need environmentalists or greenies coming into Latrobe Valley to tell them what they must do and push them away from what they know. When you push people away from what they know, they fight you, they hate you, and they hold tighter to what they know and what they have. Our workers are kicking and screaming, saying, but what have we got? How are we going to create this power? Rather than we say, well, it must end, how do we tell the story of what is next? With the renewable energies, where are the jobs? You know, people fear for the jobs for themselves and for their kids. Where are the jobs? There's actually lots of jobs. I was in a meeting just before Christmas with a lot of renewable energy companies where they're saying they actually believe we will have a shortage of people to fill the jobs. There will be so many jobs, but they're different jobs. I am fucking fascinated by this idea of identity of the valley. And I really don't know if anyone has like pitched a thing where it's like we just focus on how we are so much more than fucking coal. Yeah. Like there is around the world. Uh, countless places that respect their history while looking forward. Doesn't that seem like what we need to do? Yeah, absolutely. Like, Like this place is beautiful. I think sometimes people, when they first drive down, I don't know what they're expecting and maybe from, you know, the reputation of it being kind of like crimey and stabby and stuff. And there are obviously pockets that are like less aesthetic, but there are beautiful rolling green hills, beautiful forests, rivers. It looks like the fucking Shire, man. It is, right? And I mean the Hobbit Shire, not like the place in Sydney. I think it is important to diversify our identity, (laughs) if I may, and think about some of the other beautiful things that we have around. And like, there's farming here. Lots of farming. There's heaps of potatoes. Gibbs dairy. Yeah, exactly. That shit's everywhere. Exactly. So there are other things as well. I think diversifying the identity so that we're not anchored to one Uh, diet industry would be great. Several projects have now been announced for Latrobe Valley. One of them being the lead recycling plant, so the ULAB. There there is no safe level of lead. We took lead out of fuel and we took lead out of paint because of the health impacts of children. Yet we now see a minister that has proved a you know lead acid battery recycling plant by an international company who won't be as strict as Australia, there will be shortcuts near a school. While they say it won't let out much lead, it will put lead out. Any level of lead builds up. Lead is one product that doesn't break down. So if you've got a facility, and we know power stations also let out lead, so let's not let them off easily. But why then introduce more lead into the area that will build up? Now, this will be a bit slower build up if it's just normal run-of-the-mill day. But let's now think about Hazelwood. Hazelwood was an accident waiting to happen. A risk they knew that they didn't address. All we need for the lead recycling facility is an incident. It takes them five minutes to realise and turn things off at the plant. They then have to pick up the phone to the school, which is just a few hundred metres down the road. It's lunchtime. The kids are outside, you know, having lunch. They're playing on the monkey bars. Johnny is refusing to go inside because he knows it's not the end of lunchtime. The damage is done. So just want to touch on that no safe level of lead situation. Oh my God, that was very visceral. And it's so, it's so right. So for people that uh, aren't aware, there is a proposition to build a battery recycling plant, aka a lead smelter 
in Hazelwood North, which is quite nearby Morwell. It's within two kilometers from the Morwell McDonald's, as I found out when I was researching. Oh my God, not the Maccas. The Maccas. So that's like where the town is. But the school, the Hazelwood North Primary School, is like 900 meters away from this <sighs> lead smelter. I'm and sorry, so, but obviously don't. Yeah. I have to ask, who's pro- the lead smelter. I don't know any, like, I have not seen any community members that are for the lead smelter. Like, I'm maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like the community is entirely against it. Now, what I have learned from Wendy is that the approval to begin building the lead smelter was given on the 31st of December. Oh. Who is paying attention to the legislative I'm changes? I'm not listening. Yeah, right? Oh, my God. So, obviously, that's gone through at a time when people don't want you to know that it's gone through. Richard Wine, the planning commissioner of Victoria or whatever, he overturned the investigation into whether it was a good idea and approved it to be built. What a sneaky... What a sneaky bastard. Wow. Like, Wait, so is it happening? Or it's they... happening. They've <gasps> been given approval. No, as no, of, As of the 31st Johnny of December. And the lead and yeah the... yeah wait okay well this just recompounds again that we're this like dumping ground yeah can't we build i mean but then who i mean do we have do we have to have less so, melters in the so world or can we do something, something else something else interesting that wendy brought up is that a lot of uh, environmental groups are for um the re recycling factories because it's recycling and recycling is good so yes we need recycling but if we have learned anything from having the mine so close to the town and all of the future problems that we learned about potentially happening last episode we shouldn't be putting this shit next to communities so where do you put it though so you put it in a remote area that isn't close but then like, it's probably going to impact that environment like it's that so, i mean have you played some city and wherever you plonk down the bad stuff it's gonna have like a big pooey I, cloud I, around I, it, it definitely like is. where do you put it but the only reason it's getting put here is because of our industrial zoning okay. and that they can get away with it here obviously you can't please everyone mm -hmm. um but you shouldn't put a lead smelter right next 900 to meters next to from a school, school. and oh. what I like I had to fact check this because I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, it, it. seems un unreal. Yeah, but Wendy says that they have offered to give blood tests to the school kids to check that they're not affected by the lead. So if that is that's the some shinobly right, kind of yeah creepy. It is fun. So it just it needs to go somewhere else where it isn't going to get in. Like we need to have recycling plants. I don't see. Just move it a bit down the road, guys. Like yeah. <laughs> Just on. a little bit down the road Just or whatever. A bit. Not near a waterway, not near right. like those sorts of things. Like it really needs to be an isolated endeavor. I can't believe that's really happening. Well, Wendy, help, help us out. <laughs> yeah, well, Somebody got to do something about that. Yeah. Change is happening. Be involved in it. I think a just transition, it's about the community. It's about how the community together moves forward. The workers, the families, the people that don't work, everybody. And we all should play a part in that, how a just transition benefits the whole community. We're sick of people outside Latrobe Valley telling Latrobe Valley, especially governments, what's good for us. If we want a future, we want a creative future, we need to play a part. Yes, we're going to need governments, we're going to need agencies, we're going to need um, companies, we're going to need power stations. We cannot today go, well, let's turn off all the power stations and have no energy because renewable energies aren't there yet. Right now we've got what we have. We can't even imagine what will be next. But I don't think solar and wind and battery are going to be the only things. As we advance, we create more. You know, maybe transition is about actually looking at how we do things differently. I 
I find, I found Wendy's story so inspirational that not to be involved in any kind of activism or community activism and then um, stepping up because there was a need and then being part of a community group that has achieved so much. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So um, that's incredible. And I think uh, at some point Wendy says, once you know, you have to do. And I think she truly lives that and that's incredibly amazing. I also really like her focus on change narratives and how things have to change and being okay with that because change is fucking hard. Like, it's, <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, like just big ups to acknowledging the change narrative. Wendy is a person who can see the full scope of things yeah. and I love that and I, I want to embody that in my research and like in what we're doing with this podcast. I just love the idea of instead of yelling at people and demanding that they change into these things to meeting people where they're at to be able to show them what yeah. could be different yes like and you know everyone's been in a stupid argument with a stupid person <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly how not to win an argument exactly yeah no I think so, I think I mean I have to take that lesson a lot like I think if my goal is to change minds then meeting people where they're at is the way to go about it shouting at people as fun as it is. It doesn't help. Doesn't work. It really doesn't help. You just end Such up with shame. two frustrated people. Yes. For my final question for Wendy. <gasps> yes. Do you want to know what it is? I, I, I feel like you might I have really, a sneaking suspicion. I would love to know. <laughs> so I asked Wendy what her hopes were for the Latrobe Valley. As we plant seeds and have the conversations, it makes it easier. I find when I, I very rarely talk about climate change still, and I know that it's becoming a little bit more, we can talk about climate change. I talk about health. Because yes. you know what? Health of the climate, health of the people, everybody understands. We want health for our families and we want health for the environment. In fact, we can't have health for our families if we don't have health for our environment. If we have health for both of those, we actually act on climate change and yes. people understand it. When we know we can't sit back and do nothing, we have to do yeah. something, you know, and we can, we can't change the past, but we can definitely influence the future. A big thank you to Wendy Farmer for being such an amazing interview subject and for having such an incredible story. If you want to learn about the initiatives that Wendy's involved yes, in. Yes, where do we find her? You can find her over on the Voices of the Valley on Facebook. You can follow Friends of the Earth on Facebook. You can also follow No Lead Smelter Latrobe to follow the Lead Smelter News. <laughs> <laughs> but no, not none of it. But not Wendy, just the Lead Smelter News. And you can follow Yes to Renewables, and that is Yes Numerical 2 Renewables. <laughs> Brilliant. And you can also follow The Next Economy Australia. All on Facebook. All on Facebook. Amazing. Thank you again to our guest, Wendy Farmer, for being so generous with your time. You can find our resources in the show notes for this episode. The music for Coalface is by Anonymous420 and Loyalty Freak Music. The series is written, edited and produced by Josie Hess and Stephanie Sabrinskis. If you like what you heard, find us on Instagram at coalfacepod or send us an email to coalfacepodcast at gmail.com. Look out for the next episode of Coalface. <laughs>